0: And now for your hourly update on the Corona. Bu- now nah, I'm just kidding. Hope you enjoy this interview.
1: I don't know, at one point, somebody posted porn on our homepage, like from outside. A worker could have a profile, and so somebody uploaded all these profiles with pornographic pictures on them. One of our customers pinged me and when I got up at 5 a.m. and they were like, do you know that you have pornography all over your website? I was like, I did not know that. And I decided to leave, why? Well, because... Having grown up there, you start looking at where you're going to be in 10 years. And I just felt like maybe there was something more and you had to give it a shot. A lot of people don't know this, but Pure was started by... At the end of the day, it's not about how hard you work. It's about, do you return capital to your limited partners? And so I could win the argument, but lose the war. You know what I mean? Win the battle, but lose the war, because I was right, but it's not a good business to say, buyer beware. Hi Austin, I'm Gary Swart. I am 58 years old. I live in the San Francisco Bay area in the town of Atherton, just south of San Francisco. And I currently work for a venture capital firm called Polaris Partners, company that's been around for about 22 years, investing in both healthcare and technology companies. We manage about four and a half billion dollars investing out of fund nine. And prior to that, I ran a company called Odesk that is now known as Upwork, a marketplace for freelance talent.
0: So would you say that's what you're mostly known for, at least up
1: to today? I'm probably most known for being the CEO of Odesk for almost nine years. And then, of course, prior to that, I helped start another company called Intellibank. And before that, I worked at a little startup called IBM that was the acquisition of another company called Rational Software. So I'm a lifelong operator who uh, transitioned to venture capital just a few years ago.
0: So your day to day on like players, partners, what
1: are you doing? Are you just trying to find startups to invest in? Yeah, it's a combination of things. It's sourcing and meeting and qualifying and disqualifying great opportunities. So looking for great entrepreneurs, interesting companies with huge markets. Then once you find a company that looks exciting, you have to do a lot of diligence and make sure that you really know the people and the market and the competition, et cetera. Then you make the investment. And because you want to invest doesn't mean you always get to invest. So it's a little bit competitive. You have to win those deals. And then once you make the investment, you're now a board member in that company. And the job is returning capital to your limited partners. So people invest in Polaris, we return their money back. And I'm happy to talk more about that, hopefully making them money along the way in the companies that you invest in. So investing is only part of it. Once you make an investment, now you're responsible for getting to the good part where you actually make your limited partners money.
0: So is venture capital everything you thought it would be?
1: There are a lot of great things about this job, and I'm happy to talk through my decision criteria as to why I decided to do this. And I think it's relevant, really, for any career choice. If you'll indulge me, I'll go through my criteria. First of all, you have to like the people and you have to like the work. And if you like what you're doing, if you're passionate about it and you like it and you like the people, a lot of things can fall in line, especially if you're good at it. But beyond that, I think it's about four things. It's about impact. Can you personally make a difference in whatever it is that you're doing? And even better if your company is making a difference in the world. The second thing is growth and development. Do you feel like you're on a steep trajectory for learning? A year from now, are you going to know a lot more than you know today? The third thing is financial reward. Are you being paid fairly and is there significant upside? You're going to put a lot of effort into what you do most of your life. You should like it and you should feel like you're getting paid fairly, and maybe even have an opportunity for a big win in what you're doing. And then the fourth thing is sort of a catch all, and I call it balance. And balance could be whatever is important to you outside of work. Maybe you're traveling a lot, and that's not, you don't want to travel a lot, or maybe you don't have time for family or sports or your extracurricular activities, whatever keeps you busy outside of work. And as a CEO, Everything was on my shoulders, you know, every customer, every employee, every investor. It's hard to have balance. Even when you're on vacation, you're not really on vacation. And so I was looking for an opportunity that provided impact, growth and development, finance, reward and balance. And to answer your question, is that everything it's cracked up to be, it checks all of those boxes for me personally. And I like the people and I like the work. So I would say it's a fantastic opportunity.
0: Are you saying when you made the transition is because when you're at ODesk before, where you're probably not having the exact same balance that you have now, that seems like you might have more freedom and ability to do what you want?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I looked at those criteria and let's cover all of them. You know, one, I really like the people. I got invited to join Polaris. I'd worked with one of the partners at a previous company. And we had a great working relationship and it stayed in touch over the years. And when I exited Odesk, they were looking for somebody on the West Coast with my skill set. So I can check that box. And from an impact perspective, when you're the CEO of a company, you can make a pretty big difference for your employees, your customers, your investors. And Odesk happened to be an incredibly impactful company. We provided jobs for people all over the world regardless of where they live. So for the audience members that don't know what upwork is, it's a marketplace for talent. You can hire, manage and pay people regardless of where they live, and they come to work for you every day via the internet as opposed to on-site. And so connecting people and opportunities on a global basis, which of course gives companies access to greater talent beyond the 50-mile radius of their office, and typically at better economics due to global arbitrage. Hiring a worker in Ohio from San Francisco Bay Area may be not only better talent, but also less expensive. And for the person in Ohio, they now have a job with a company that is willing to pay them more for that skill set and they don't have to have just one client. And that, of course, works on a global scale. So the company itself was very impactful. And when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, I thought it would be hard for me to find an opportunity that was as meaningful as Odesk was. I mean, I would get hundreds of emails a week. From not only workers, but also clients who were thrilled with our service, saying thanks for the opportunity. Not a week goes by where somebody doesn't say, oh my gosh, I love Upwork. I love the company and the service you provide. So the impact box was going to be hard to replicate. And as an investor, you know, I'm now on eight boards, maybe 10 investments, plus I influence my partner's companies. And so now you're not just traveling in eight cars, right? I have the opportunity to impact eight different companies with their own missions for the world as opposed to just one. So from an impact perspective, check the box. Growth and development. Let's just say that as a CEO for nine years, I know 50% of the CEO job and I have 50% to learn. So I could go lead another company and I have that 50% to learn, but unfortunately it comes with the 50% that I already know how to do. And I didn't feel like doing a lot of that again. Whereas the venture capital job, the investor job, I know about 10% of the job. So my growth and development opportunity is 90%, significantly more because the mechanics and doing this job is very different. So it's learning new skills, new technologies, new markets, new relationships. It's really a massive growth opportunity. From a financial reward perspective, I liken it to playing roulette. And if you walk into a casino, which I don't do on a regular basis, I'm not really a gambler, but if you think about a stack of chips, let's say you put that stack of chips on one number. If that number comes in, you win 35 to 1 odds. And it's not dissimilar from running a tech company. If you have an outcome and you have a big stack of chips on that number and that number comes in, you can win big. And fortunately, Upwork went public a year ago. And so the number came up and I did, in fact, have a stack of chips. And so now you can take those chips off the table. And if you go to another company, you have another stack. But for your number to come up, as everybody knows, all the entrepreneurs out there know, it's uh, long odds. It's hard to have an outcome, right? And by outcome, I mean, you run a very profitable business and you're pulling money off the table every year, or you take venture capital money and you're looking for either an IPO or an acquisition. Whereas in the venture job, you're still playing roulette, but you're spreading chips all over the table. And it's not only your chips, it's also your partner's chips. So you're making investments, they're making investments. In a fund, you might invest in 30 to 40 companies. Not all of those companies are gonna be successful, but for the ones that are, then you're gonna be taking chips off the table. Now smaller stacks, but that's okay, you're leveraged. So now all of your chips aren't on one number, you're now covering a board, And then as you raise multiple funds, you're now playing multiple tables. So from a financial reward perspective, I think it can be very lucrative and rewarding. Maybe not as much as running your own company, but you're de-risked a little bit by having some leverage. And then the fourth thing which you asked me originally was the balance. And in this job, you still work incredibly hard, but you work hard on your terms. You have a lot more freedom and flexibility as a partner then as you do a CEO. The CEO, again, all of the weight is on your shoulders. Now I can go on vacation and I still may talk to my companies or my partners while away, but it's not as urgent. It's not all the weight of the world is not on your shoulders. You're not really driving the car. You're just a passenger in the car.
0: Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, You've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days. No catch and no credit card required. Go to FreshBooks.com forward slash MI and enter Millionaire Interviews. And the how did you hear about us section to get started? That's freshbooks.com forward slash MI. And for more information about Fresh Books, you can go check out episode 141 where I interviewed the founder, Mike McDermott. So I know this past Friday was your first group call. Did you uh, get the answer you were looking for?
1: Actually, I got a really good answer that led to like more questions. So those are like the best answers.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I try to make sure all of our new members get their questions answered first. Yeah, that was perfect. That was definitely perfect. Yeah. I was like, okay, now I've got to research this and ask my team this. Like it was perfect. Yeah. I didn't know what your work lifestyle is like today versus at Upwork, but I'm just thinking from afar, I'm like, dude, that has to be pretty stressful and You might work as hard right now at Polaris Partners, but there'd be a lot more flexibility versus being the head honcho of this global business, really. Because a lot of our audience, I think, is familiar with virtual assistants. I've talked about how I started learning about Odesk when it was called Odesk, and now it's obviously called Upwork now. But just from afar, I just imagine that it would be a stressful experience. It is indeed.
1: And not that this isn't stressful. Right. One of the challenges with venture capitalists is that you can invest in companies, but I just mentioned it you're a passenger in the car, and you can't grab the wheel. I know from running my own company when a board member or an investor wanted to grab the wheel how frustrated I was with somebody else wanting to be a backseat driver or tell you to brake or you know try and tell you how to drive and so I said that's not the investor or board member that I want to be. I want to be a valuable member of the car. I want to be invited on the journey and given a job, whether it's naps or navigation or music or something that's going to make the journey more successful without having to grab the wheel. But with that said, I have been down the road my whole career. I've seen what happens when you go right and left in certain situations. And you can try and guide your companies, CEOs and teams to maybe steer left instead of right. But at the end of the day, you can't make them go right or left. You can only give them some guidance and some coaching and hope that they pick right. And if they don't, learn from the mistakes and then course correct next time. And so while you have the flexibility of being in multiple cars, you don't have control of the wheel, so to speak.
0: I could see also when I got into podcasting, when you're talking about growth and development being one of the things like I didn't know anything about podcasting, you know, and so I was just like gun ho always learning as much as I could about it. And it's always interesting to me. So was it one of these things that played more of a role of you
1: transitioning to the venture capital space from Upwork versus the other? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the growth and development piece. That's what's exciting. All of a sudden, you've got new skills you're learning. What you do on a daily basis has changed and prioritization of what you do and where do you spend your time. And at the end of the day, it's not about how hard you work. It's about do you return capital to your limited partners? I think it's worth maybe just explaining this for those that don't know. So limited partners give us their capital and then we return money to them, assuming that we're successful. So we take that money, invest in companies, and those companies have to have an exit before you can return capital to your investors. And so we're all looking for companies that are going to hopefully do that. Now, some don't make it. Some do exceptionally well. A majority don't make it though, right? A majority don't make it, right. Right. And so every company in the portfolio plays a role. You may want something to have a decent exit in a short amount of time so you can return some quick capital to your limited partners and then take some wild swings on some really big potential opportunities that could not make it at all or they could be massive later in the fund. So, you know, we often refer to that as the engine and the wings. So you need an engine to get down the runway and then the wings give you liftoff. Maybe early in a fund, we have a couple of deals that look play the role of an engine and you still need an engine late in the fund, but the wings give you liftoff.
0: So those time horizons, you're talking about maybe some might be like three to five-year exits, but most of you're kind of shooting for like a 10-year exit?
1: That's a typical life cycle of a fund. Some can be longer and some can be in the money sooner. But the interesting thing is that As an investor, you don't make money until you return the full fund back to your limited partners. So let's just say that you have a $400 million fund. You don't get carry or commissions on that fund until you return the whole $400 million back to your limited partners. And then over $400 million, well, then you have some relationship where you get some percentage of a dollar. Maybe it's 20% of the dollar for every dollar over $400 million that you return to your limited partners. And that could be years. As you said, that could be eight years before you're in the money, before you as an investor start making commissions or carry on that money that you return.
0: Well, interesting. Yeah. Thank you for talking a little bit about venture capital here. Would you want to go ahead and jump back in your story and tell us kind of how you got to where you are today?
1: Sure. So I attended University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland, go Terps. I grew up in New Jersey and I think about 7% of the school was from New York or New Jersey. So it was a very popular university to attend from the Northeast. And I graduated with a degree in business and went into manufacturing right out of college. And manufacturing was really interesting, actually making parts. And I made precision uh, metal products that went into other products and ended up as a sort of a middleman. People needed parts made. I knew people that could make them. And so I would broker relationships between buyers and providers of precision metals while performing operations in the middle on certain parts. And it was a really fun business. It was generated cash from the very beginning, but that's a type of business, one where I could see that it was declining in the US. It was getting more competitive globally, not only globally, it was more competitive locally and a lot more automation. So you could buy machinery that was very expensive that would replace the need for humans. And so I kind of saw that automation was a pretty big trend and it would require a lot of capital investment to grow a business in that area. And I was living on the East Coast after college back in New Jersey. And at the same time, I was reading a lot about Silicon Valley and just the growth on the West Coast. And it was actually my wife who said we should move west we should go out to California and get on this fast-moving train. And so we both launched job searches. And I ended up with a job at a small company called Pure Software. And Pure was a developer diagnostic product. So basically, it helped software developers to write a better, cleaner, faster code. And real quick, just so we keep
0: the dates, was about 95 when you moved out to San Francisco? Yeah, so it was mid-90s. Okay. And so you're already married at this point?
1: Yeah. I was married at that point. I got married in 1991 and living in New Jersey. My wife was commuting to Manhattan. I was running a manufacturing business in New Jersey. And actually, we moved out in 94. I moved to the Bay Area and started at a little company called Pure Software, You know, employee number 25 or something like that. And a lot of people don't know this, but Pure was started by a gentleman by the name of Reed Hastings. Does that name ring a bell? I've heard it for sure. He's now the CEO of a I don't know, little internet. I see now. Yeah, Netflix. There you go. And so Reed's first company was Pure Software. And it was this really geeky, it was called object code insertion, a really technical product for making software developers more efficient and effective. And it was a puppy dog of a sale. It was the kind of product where if you put it in people's hands, they didn't want to give it back. And then you could say well just keep it but just pay me for it and so and i was on the sales side so it was a phenomenal product to sell we went public in the mid 90s we had a great ipo we had a series of acquisitions so we acquired other developer diagnostic tools so you start to put a suite together if you're going to sell a developer one thing isn't it great if you can sell them another i learned early on that there's sort of a few different ways that you can make money you sell a product to somebody and now you can either sell them more of the same product so if there's 10 developers and only five bought well then you could sell them five more seats and make more money you could sell them other tools that's the cross sell where if you're selling them one thing can you sell them an add-on or something else so you bought the burger do you also want the fries and the shake more burgers why because they bought some friends And you can also charge more. You could say, well, the price was this, but now it's going up. Why? Because we added more functionality. So we were adding more tools into the bag. So if you were selling one thing, you could now sell a suite of things. And then ultimately we merged with a company called Etria that had their own suite of products. So we went from one product to eight products. And then we got acquired by a company called Rational Software. And Rational had a bag of eight other products. So now we had a whole developer suite that you could sell to engineering departments of all of the companies in the world. I think we had 98 of the Fortune 100 were using our tool. And so it was an incredible journey, you know, empowering these companies to develop more software that actually worked, including testing tools and the like. And then ultimately that company was acquired by IBM.
0: In 2003 was one you were actually acquired by IBM. So it was about eight years
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: Before you get too much further in the story, I just want to point out your personal life and like your age and everything when you actually moved to San Francisco. So you told us you were married. I didn't know how old you actually
1: were when you came over, if you had kids or... You focus a lot on age and (laughs) we usually talk about it. It's funny. Yeah, I'm old, but I got married when I was 31. And then we moved to the Bay Area. That was 1991. We moved to the Bay Area at the very end of 93. So I kind of started in January of 94. And then the company went public, I'm going to say Pure went public probably late 95 and then was acquired by IBM. It was probably around 2003.
0: So that manufacturing company that you're working for outside of college, you're doing that for eight years or so? Yeah, eight or nine
1: years. So you're into it for a while. It's really interesting you bring this up. If you think about my life, it's almost been like 10-year chunks, 10 years post-college of manufacturing and middleman, right? in New Jersey, and then 10 years of sort of pure to IBM from Jungle, Dirt Road, and Highway in one fell swoop. Employee number 20 to employee number 135,000 at IBM. Wow. Yeah. Did you want to hit on the other 10? Yeah. And then 10 between Intellibank and running ODES, so sort of my company founding and running stage. And now I'm four to five years into investing stage. And so I've kind of had these four, 10-year chunks, and it's really been phenomenal. As I look back, it kind of follows this impact, growth, and development, finance, reward, and balance trend. At the end of the day, you're all about the sum of your experiences. And so maybe I have five years, six years of this left, and then I'm going to go on to my next chapter. And I have no idea what that looks like, but I can tell you I have no regrets out of any of my chapters to date. It's been phenomenal to have such sort of a varied road through a career that's built on each of the previous steps. Maybe go back and get your PhD? Yeah, or teach. Or I don't know. I really enjoy any time I get to speak with students. I enjoy that. People have told me that might be something. But right now, I'm thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing. And if I'm playing this 10-year thing, I'm only a few years in, so I've got a good run left. I'm going to focus on why you even went to San Francisco. Were you doing well
0: in your manufacturing job? And kudos to figuring out and looking forward to saying like, hey, I don't know if this is going to stick around for a while because so many people never do that and are scared. But it's better to be forward thinking of like, hey, if these manufacturing jobs aren't going to be here forever, I'd rather make a career transition when I'm 40 and be doing this for 20 years or would I rather make it now?
1: What's really interesting. I agree with you. It wasn't obvious. And I was doing very well from a career perspective, if I looked at my friends, I mean, I bought a house at a very young age because I had cash. I mean, I was making money. My family had a beach house in New Jersey that I absolutely loved. I mean, I lived for that on Fridays as early as I could. Some days noon, I'd be on my way in the summer to the beach and I wouldn't come back until Monday morning. I would park the car and, and do that for four months out of the year, every single weekend and every vacation. And then my wife's family had a ski house in Vermont and we were in New York all the time. And so we had a great house, great friends. It wasn't obvious, but it was this thing where having grown up there, you start looking at where you are going to be in 10 years? And I just felt like maybe there was something more and you had to give it a shot and you can always go back. So it was one of these where we sold our house We put all of our furniture in storage. So we got a storage place, put all of our furniture in there. We shipped two cars with as much as we could fill those cars with and a couple of boxes to the West Coast and said, we'll go for a couple of years and give it a shot. And then about 18 months later, we sent for all our furniture. We ended up buying a house and sending for our furniture. They're very different environments from New Jersey and manufacturing to San Francisco and technology. I remember we sold our house on the East Coast and our first house on the West Coast was twice as much as the house we had just sold. It was exactly two times as much and it was probably about 30% of the house. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like The house we sold was great and the house we bought was not so great. It was a mess. The day we bought it, it was pouring rain and the day we closed and I remember going over and water was pouring into the den and I looked in the corner I saw something in the corner. I was like, what is that? I walked over. There was a mushroom growing in the den inside the house, which I can tell you is not good. So my point is that it wasn't an easy thing. You know, Her family is on the East Coast. My family was on the East Coast. It was a big, uh, bold move. And I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have made that move. I got on a faster moving train that turned into, I think, a pretty meaningful career. And who knows what would have happened if I stayed on the East Coast, but it's just a more varied experience. And I was just back at my high school reunion, a big reunion, actually my 40th, and it was fantastic seeing people. And I would say probably about 25 to 30% of a very large class, we graduated about 650 people in my senior class, And about 25 to 30% of them live within a 30-mile radius of where I grew up. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't for me. I felt like I wanted to experience more, and I did.
0: What's weird, though, too, is that you were there for about 10 years afterward. It was good you were able to see other people and kind of projecting, again, what you'd be in like in 10 years. But was it the same thing with friends where you didn't want to hang out with them as much and you just saw more career potential by moving to West Coast? That is such a big move. And again, now you're still on the West Coast, obviously. So it's just interesting why it seemed like everything was going well, why you just wanted to
1: kind of upend and go somewhere else. Everything was going well, but it was comfortable. Was life getting boring? Yeah, I probably could have done that my whole life. But you play the tapes forward and say, I'm going to be in the same place I grew up. Maybe it was too set in my ways. And also it was my wife saying, hey, we should go experience more. In addition, I didn't love the work. And quite frankly, I don't know if I was that good at it. Somebody, I saw a diagram once and it had, it was a Venn diagram, three circles all intersecting in the middle. And one circle was labeled, what are you good at? So what are you really good at? The next circle was, what do you like to do? You may be really good at something, but you don't love doing it. So what do you like to do? And some people say, well, I really like X, but I don't know, skiing or snowboarding or whatever it could be, baseball. And they go and get a career in that thing because they love it so much. And then the third circle is, what will people pay you to do? What can you get paid for? And if you can find the intersection of those three things, I think that has a lot to do with happiness. And one, I didn't love what I was doing. Two, quite frankly, I wasn't exceptional at it. And three, I didn't see the opportunity for that to meaningful change without taking significant risk, like borrowing a lot of money from the bank, buying a lot of machinery, doubling down on that industry. But if you don't like it and you're not good at it, why bother? And coupled with the fact that I would get a little bit depressed when October would come around and summertime's over. There's no more beach. Whereas in California, I was surfing on Sunday. It was 75 degrees. It's mid-November. I'm more of an outdoor person. I like the sun and the environment here was just a little bit more conducive for what I was looking to do in my spare time. It supported a lot of my hobbies. Yeah, I mean, I totally
0: agree. I always wonder about that with people in New York. Like, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. So you're wondering, it's like, okay, at least daylight, there's a little bit more. But during the winter seasons, man, it's just like, I can imagine living up there and having to deal with that. So it seems like that mental shift as well, especially during wintertime, you're coming home and you can just imagine yourself doing the same thing for the next 30 years. That would be like, hey, I need to change something. And then your wife was on board. So that made it pretty easy.
1: Yes, but don't get me wrong. Polaris is based San Francisco, New York, and Boston. I have a company in Boston. I'll be there in a couple of weeks. I go to New York at least once every six or eight weeks, and I love it. It's in my blood. I mean, I was just in New Jersey. But that's different from living there, right? Exactly. (laughs) I feel like I have the best of all worlds. So I don't want to dog the East Coast. I love the East Coast. So far, three of my kids have graduated high school and have all gone to school on the East Coast, one in D.C., one in Princeton, New Jersey, and one in New York. And every time I go to visit, I take in as much as I can, fantastic food, see friends, a show, the nightlife, visit family. And then every time I get off the plane in San Francisco, I smell that Bay Air and I just get happy. And so I feel like I have the best of all worlds.
0: It's like I love Mexico, but it's not like I want to live there, right? Exactly. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. You didn't come across as dogging it at all. I'm just curious, like there's other people, if you're stuck there all the time, I think just the ability to move around, especially how easy it is now, I think makes everything a little bit more interesting. But when you actually came over from, like you said, the East Coast, did you already have pure software, like that job already figured out? Or what was your job situation on the way over?
1: I did. So I lined up a job, but my wife and I, we committed to find jobs before we moved. Okay, that was good we decided we wanted to move we were going to put the wheels in motion we said okay well the first thing we have to have a job lined up and so we both this was like pre-internet so i remember going to the library in Westfield New Jersey and doing research on companies <laughs> you know like and then i don't think it's dissimilar from what you would do today i started tapping into my network and so a friend of mine from college was living in San Francisco and i'd been out a couple of times to visit he and his wife And I was friends with him in college. He got married after college. I got to know his wife and they were one of the couples that I contacted. And I said, hey, we're thinking of moving to San Francisco. And she said immediately, come work for me. I want you to come work for me. And she was running a large sales team at a company called Oracle. She was very early Oracle and ran a large sales organization. And then by the time I got my act together and came out and interviewed with them, she was leaving. And so I ended up sort of starting from scratch, but ultimately uh, got hired at Pure Software.
0: So yeah, just jumping back in the chronological part of the story. So you basically over that time you grew from a startup, if you will, being a 20-something person. And then eventually y'all were bought by IBM within about 10 years?
1: Yeah. So what happened was Pure was very successful, public in the mid-90s, lots of mergers and acquisitions and you know, started growing, growing. We got to be over 300 people. I don't remember what our revenues were, but sizable revenue. And then we got acquired by Rational Software and Rational was bigger still. And so now Rational was 600 plus million in revenue, maybe 700 employees. And I got invited to be on a sales leadership team there. Every time a company gets acquired, they have to figure out, okay, who's staying, who's going, and who's doing what. And so they kind of like rearrange the chairs on the deck and figure out who plays the role. And anytime that happened, I typically ended up with a good role. So I was always invited to stay. When Pure and Atria merged, I was invited to stay. I was giving a meaningful role. And oftentimes, they don't want people to leave during a merger. So for keepers, they'll put some incentive comp in place where they'll say, hey, if you stay for a year, we're going to give you a bonus at the end of that year. We're going to give you more stock or whatever. So if you go back to the impact, growth and development, financial reward and balance, every time there was a merger and acquisition, I was incented to stay. And when Rational acquired Pure Atria, not only was I invited to stay, but I was given a good job and I was given two years of incentive compensation. So if you stay for a year, we're going to give you this bonus. And if you stay for two years, we're going to give you this bonus. And it was meaningful. It was a lot of money. How much money is a lot of money? I'll just tell you right now, they basically were going to pay me the equivalent of my salary. There was how much money you'd make. At the end of one year, they would give you that amount in a bonus. And at the end of the second year, they would give you even more in a bonus.
0: Five years of salary, it sounds like in two years. One, you get the two years that you're working, plus the first year That's a third year of salary. It sounds like they're going to even give you yes. more than that. So like maybe four to five years of salary. Plus stock. Oh, okay, wow. In the company. But that was a lot of incentive. <laughs>
1: Right. And a big job. The Rational leadership team gave me a very meaningful job running a very large sales team, not globally, but for North America at the time. And so it was big. You know, I had visibility to the CEO and it was really exciting. It was so exciting to me. And I liked the company. They made no mistake as to who was in charge, who was staying, who was going, who was doing what. Rational did a really nice job of acquiring Pure Atria and putting the deck chairs in the right place within two weeks. I mean, it was very well executed. I was impressed by how well they executed that. And I was so impressed that I decided to stay at Rational as opposed to go with my friend Reed and Mark and be employee number four at their little DVD in an envelope company called Netflix. And so as I look back on my career, you know, we talk about it and it's this, the benefit of being old, like I am, is you learn from why did you make these decisions and why didn't I take the risk at that point and stay with the sure thing? By this point, I had three kids and that guaranteed sort of compensation, plus I had a big impactful role, plus I was learning a lot. It kind of checked all of my boxes at that time. Now, in hindsight, I made a horrible mistake and <laughs> I should have gone be employee number four at a really cool company. But as uh, Reed would say to me now, I saw him a few years ago and he said, oh, you've done great and you've Had a fantastic career. And I said, Reed, I should have gone with you guys back in 1998 or whatever the time was. And he said, Well, who knows if that would have worked out? He said, It wasn't obvious. We had so many twists and turns. And I highly recommend for your listeners, there's a book now called That'll Never Work. And it's written by my good friend, Mark Randolph. I listened to it on Audible and I thought maybe I liked it just because he's my friend and I used to work with him and he was part of the story. And I was part of the story, one of the people that said, that'll never work about Netflix. But it's a fantastic story about the starting of Netflix and all the twists and turns and how it seems obvious now, but it was not obvious
0: then. Yeah, it has good ratings. on looking on Amazon
1: right now. Yeah, it is a really good book. And Mark's a fantastic storyteller. I recommend you read the book. And you should also get him on your podcast because he's a great storyteller.
0: Happy for introduction. Yeah. So it's called that will never work. And then colon the birth of Netflix and the amazing life of an idea. And you said to use Audible. So if anyone's listening and wants to use Audible, go to audible.com forward slash millionaire since they're a sponsor. Hindsight's twenty twenty. like you said, if you liked everything you were doing and everything, I would say it was a mistake if you didn't enjoy what you're doing, but you still stayed just for the financial stuff or if you weren't learning, but it still seems that your four check boxes for wherever you're working. I mean, if you're still happy doing everything you're doing, I don't consider it a mistake because again, who knows if it would have worked if you would have came over.
1: The only thing is in hindsight, I didn't have these criteria. I developed these criteria for making a job and career decisions later in life based on my experiences. So a good friend of mine says experience is what you get when you don't get all the other things you want. So you really try and benefit from where you may have made mistakes or you didn't get it right. For example, we didn't talk about this, but when I left IBM, again, IBM acquired Rational. I was invited to stay. I was given, sticking around money for two years. I was tapped to be what's known as an integration executive. So I was one of the few people responsible for merging Rational into IBM, which in addition to your day job, comes with a lot of responsibility. Committees and figuring out who goes where and how does everybody get trained and It's a one year assignment of making sure that the two companies get merged successfully. And I was on the rational side, responsible for merging rational into IBM. And I love that. That was really exciting for that year. But after that assignment was up, I kind of felt like my growth curve was flat. My impact was non existent. In a 135,000 person company, I couldn't even get near the bridge of the ship, let alone steer it. And while the financial reward was good, I had too much balance. I like to say at IBM, the only two metrics that mattered were nine and five. As long as you were like somewhat working during those hours, nobody was going above and beyond. And that may be fine for some people. Again, I'm not dogging IBM. It was a fantastic experience. It just wasn't for me. And so I went to help start this company called Intellibank. And it was a phenomenal product, phenomenal team, so many valuable lessons. And I wouldn't have been eligible for the ODesk job Had I not had that Intellibank experience, I wouldn't have been eligible for the CEO of Odesk out of IBM. I needed to have the lessons learned from a, using air quotes here, which you can't see, a failed startup. Intellibank was not successful, but again, it was part of my training ground. It didn't matter that it wasn't successful. What mattered was joining Odesk, I could articulate what mistakes we made at Intellibank. I knew why we weren't successful, and I knew that I would never make those mistakes again.
0: What the hell was Intellibank?
1: So Intellibank was, you're going to love this. It was a little web dev folder on your desktop where you could drag and drop documents and share them with people. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. It sounds like one of your other friends, the guy who started Dropbox. Yeah. It sounds like a little company called Dropbox. (laughs) And so we were like an early Dropbox, way before Dropbox or Box.
0: And you had a chance to join and be the fifth employee there too? No, I did not. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) That would be bad.
1: Exactly. But well, I had a chance to build the company myself, we had fantastic technology. I would argue that we had too much technology. We not only had that little web dev folder, but we had a whole hierarchy and security on the back end. So provisioning and drag and drop and check in and check out and version control and so much enterprise functionality that we ended up competing with Microsoft SharePoint. We were like this little startup with this enterprise functionality, and we just never really nailed product market fit, which was an incredible lesson learned for not only our startup, but for me at Odesk and now me as an investor. I kind of know what to look for from early team.
0: But when you joined Intellibank, did you put money on the table or were you getting a high because it sounds like all these other positions, you at least got a pretty good salary or some stock options, if you will for Intellibank, was it the same sort of financial deal or did you actually have to go without your own salary and put money into this company?
1: That's a great point. And so at Intellibank, I had a very good stock position. So if the company was successful, I would have had a nice stack of chips on that number we talked about earlier. If that company was successful, I would have done very well from a stock position. But at a startup, oftentimes you'll trade stock for cash. So I was making significantly less than I was making at IBM. Not to mention the fact that I left IBM after 18 months. So I left my last six-month installment. Remember I said there were these two-year bonuses? At IBM, it was paid in four installments. I left the biggest installment on the table walking away. And I also walked away from like incredible benefits and perks. But IBM, as an executive, I never travel less than business class. It hurts you, they never give you less than a Volvo. Your benefits are amazing. We had a baby when I was still at IBM and I remember like my out-of-pocket expenses were zero. At Intellibank, we had a child and all the bills started coming to the house and I was like, what's this? I have to actually pay this? I'd never had insurance up until then was something that was always completely covered and at a startup our insurance was really weak. So I left a lot on the table which that's part of the calculus of turning down Netflix. I had this great salary plus all this sticking around money and I was going to not go to ramen noodle, but make significantly less from a compensation perspective. But in the long run, it would have worked out incredibly well. Why? Because I would have had a very early stake in a $150 billion company. So oftentimes you will trade off compensation for equity upside. My last name, which is... Is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you.
0: I'm the other branch. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you want to be. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire, well then join Patreon today.
1: So i listened to a number of podcasts and actually the guy that runs U.S. staffing services, I've been talking to him about doing some work with him, one of my businesses in the States. So I've linked in with people because of it as well. So it's been fantastic, like the, the kind of network you get. And I decided to increase my subscription to gain access to your extra Patreon content. As you've said in some of your adverts, it's paying it forward. I mean, obviously it's it's hard for you to, to monetize what you're doing on a mass scale. So I've decided it would be a good investment to get access to this stuff and join some of the group calls uh, with the other Patreon members and get access to better content.
0: But even when you're saying like, I know you didn't have these four key points that we keep hitting on, which I think is important because everyone can think about it introspectively right now. Even though you didn't know them then, you still always knew if you're happy or not, because all this kind of plays into happiness, your personal happiness, if you will. So when they started off Netflix and you decided not to go with them, you're still happy wherever you were. It sounds like the exact opposite with IBM, right? Or else you would have stayed there for those last six months. I imagine the learning side, like you're saying. And if you're just coming in nine to five and it's a whole different mindset than kind of these other roles where it seems like you were probably working a lot more.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. At some point you say, I don't care how much they're paying me. I don't enjoy it. And even my wife at the time said it. She goes, you're just not happy, like jumping out of bed. You can't wait to get in the work in the morning. And I was leaving early. I just, my heart wasn't in it. And part of it is I started mapping out my future at Big Blue, at IBM. I like that it's called Big Blue. I never knew it was called Big Blue. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. They used to call it Big Blue. So let's just say that five years from now, I started looking out and saying, okay, in five years, I could have that job. That person over there is doing the job that I could potentially have. If I stay on this trajectory at IBM, I could get promoted a couple of times and I would end up with that job. And I went to lunch with that guy and I said, hey, you're doing this job and How do you like it? He said, no, I don't like it. He said, it's the same job that you're doing. It's just bigger. It's the exact same mechanics. He said, everything that you're doing, every single thing that you do on a daily basis, I'm doing on a daily basis. I just have a few more people, but it's the same job that got me. And what I realized was I actually got invited to interview for a job and I flew up to Seattle and I was interviewing with a guy by the name of Dan Levitan and Dan runs Navron Ventures. And I was sitting in his office in Seattle interviewing to go work at one of his companies, and he started asking me questions about IBM and my job and my career and the like. And he looked at me, and said, you know what, Gary, he said, you're going to either have to change your aspirations or change your environment. So what he was telling me or what I told him and he articulated for me was that I was never going to be happy there. He said, you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish at IBM. He was just being honest with me. He was saying, you know, you're telling me what you want to do and what you want to be and where you want to go in life. And he said, if you stay there, you're going to wake up in 15 years. You're going to have the mantle clock. You'll be wearing a blazer, no tie, maybe driving a BMW, but you're not going to have what you want out of life. And so I left Seattle. I got on Alaska Airlines or whatever airlines to fly home. And I remember I had a window seat in a three seater, you know, so there were two people next to me and I had claustrophobia. I was like against the window and I was like, I got to get off this plane. Like, I gotta get out. And it was a metaphor for, I have to get out of IBM. I can't accomplish what I want to accomplish there. And so I really credit Dan with giving me that, just articulating it. I must've known it, but it was at that moment that I said, I have to go. And I wasn't happy there.
0: So yeah, you're telling us that after you realized with IBM, you're flying back on the plane and then you want to take it from there?
1: yeah, so I was so motivated at that point to go that not only did I run away from that last installment of incentive compensation for sticking around for two years after the acquisition, but I ran from something as opposed to to something. I was so motivated to get out, and it could have been the same situation leaving New Jersey years prior you know getting out of manufacturing, but fortunately, I chose well that time. so if you're not happy, what's the saying you know the definition of insanity is? continuing to do the same thing and expect a different result. And sometimes you just have to change your environment and you may not get it right. After I left IBM, I remember it was probably about six months later. And I just mentioned we had another child. So I have a newborn and I started getting all these bills. And then I traveled and I was no longer flying business class. Why? Because I was at a startup and it just wasn't the same experience. And then that six month mark was where that fourth payment would have come in. And there was a moment there where I was almost regretting leaving. It was like, oh, if I were there, these benefits would recover I'd still be traveling in style and I would have had this nice windfall of cash. And the company wasn't going incredibly well either. But remember, I also said without that experience, I wouldn't have been eligible for the next job. So it's all part of the journey. Even if you don't get it right, it's reversible. You can always leave. Yes, you can't go back and get your final payment, or I can't go back and say, okay, now I will take that job, but don't squander the opportunity to learn from the experiences, good or bad.
0: So, from IBM, it's IntelliBank for about a year, and then you end up going to Upwork, Odesk at the time.
1: Yeah, at the time it was called Odesk.
0: So, tell us about that transition. How do you make the transition from what you're doing at Telebank into Odesk?
1: Well, Intelibank wasn't going incredibly well. And we were trying to raise money. And back in those days, there wasn't the healthy seed to A to B environment, you know, A round, seed round, A round, B rounds that there are today. At that point, seed is the new A. You can raise five, $6 million of seed capital. Nobody holds it against you. We had raised $5 million in an A round, and we weren't quite far enough along for a B. We didn't really crack the code on product market fit. We had customers. We probably had about 60 or so customers, million in revenue, but those 60 customers were of like 50 different flavors. We were selling dessert topping and floor wax. We hadn't really picked the major and nailed one thing. And so that's why I always tell people nail that product market fit. Nailing that is really important.
0: You're saying IntelliBank had 60 customers? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was confused by. Okay. So you're still on IntelliBank here?
1: So Intellibank had 60 customers, 50 different flavors. Everybody, you know, we'd go in and say, what problems are you having? They'd say this. We'd say, well, we can fix that. We can do that. And so you end up with custom software and, again, competing against SharePoint. So it wasn't going incredibly well. We were struggling to raise a B. In the process of trying to raise money for Intellibank, there was a venture capital firm that invited me back for the third time because I was active in fundraising for Intellibank. And a gentleman by the name of Greg Gretsch, who is fantastic. You should also have Greg on your show. Greg invited me for breakfast and I said, so are you going to invest in Telebank? And he said, no, we really like you. We think you should come to one of our companies and we have a company in mind for you. You really should meet these guys. And so seeing that we were somewhat against the ropes, he was saying, forget that thing. You're going to struggle to raise capital. You should get into my thing. And he basically said, I've got a fast moving train. And it's pulling up to the station and you can get on now or you can stay on your train, but this one's going to blow way by it. You're not going to get a chance to jump in at the next station. There's a moment in time here for you if you're interested. I guess I got recruited in to the founders along with their capital. So they were investing in the company and saying, we really like the company, but we think somebody like you should be on the team to help turn it into something. So
0: they just made you CEO the next day?
1: About 30 days later.
0: Damn. So, I mean, but before you weren't CEO of Intellibank, right? I was not. Okay. No, I was more like a COO. So how many people were at Intellibank versus Odesk?
1: Let's see. It was about the same size. Intellibank was probably about 15 people and Odesk when I joined was about 18 people, I think. And we took Odesk down to 12 people because we kind of shifted directions and we had...
0: And made them freelancers?
1: We yeah, funny. We did have a lot of freelancers. We had about 18 employees, but some of those employees in the early days of Odesk, the business didn't look like it does. It was sort of a hybrid staffing firm with some technology on the back end. And we kind of had to figure out, and the company wasn't clear as to which direction they were going. There was sort of two factions. One wanted to be a staffing firm and one wanted to be a marketplace. And basically I was hired in to break the tie, <laughs> just like pick a direction and point the ship in one direction.
0: And which position did you point it?
1: So we pointed it towards marketplace.
0: Why did you decide that?
1: The staffing business was really interesting, but it was a pretty easy calculus. The staffing business is very high touch, so you need a lot of people. It's hard to sort of automate that business. And the multiples on staffing firms from a valuation standpoint are not great. They can be good and nice profitable businesses, but you typically don't get a great multiple where marketplace businesses at the time, the multiples were like 10X. So 10 million in revenue was at least worth a hundred million, whereas opposed to a staffing business, 10 million in revenue was like 10 million in enterprise value.
0: Yeah. That's what I always thought about because staffing firm is like, once those staffing, people just feel like stop working within six months, the whole thing seems like it could be just done with.
1: Yeah. It's people related. It's high touch and super high touch, even though we had some technology on the back end, it wasn't as leveraged. And so we just thought a marketplace business would be a lot more scalable and a lot more leveraged.
0: So did your wife see you alive again? Yes.
1: So Intellibank was good. In Telebank, I was alive. I was working my ass off. It was fun. It just wasn't successful.
0: Yeah. The financial reward was zero versus like the other places, it seemed like 10, right? For IBM.
1: Yeah, exactly. And not only was it zero, it was negative (laughs) because I burned through a lot of cash, but she was incredibly supportive. She said, look, you got to get out of IBM. You're not happy. You've done well. We've saved a little bit of cash. Who cares? We can afford for you to take some risk at this point. You should step up to the plate. And I'm not a huge baseball fanatic, but it's a little bit of like, you have to step up to the plate. If you don't get up to bat, you don't swing at the ball. Now, you may strike out. You could whiff. You might even get hit with the pitch. But at least you got up to bat. And at IBM, I didn't feel like I was at the plate. I just felt like I've got to get out of here. I've got to swing the bat. And in telebank, I swung the bat. I swung it hard. And it could have been good if we had connected, but it's almost like, oh, strike one. You know, you only have two left oh, strike two, and it's like, you're still in there, you're still swinging, but that experience of getting up to bat was incredibly valuable.
0: So tell us about the first couple of months, the transition to Odesk. You told us about the employee count that you actually even downsized. I still thought y'all were a huge company in 2005, but apparently you're only about 13 people, you said, on staff.
1: Oh yeah, it was tiny. There was a little bit of capital in. There were some people that thought it should be a staffing firm, others that thought it should be a marketplace. I come in to break the tie, and I end up leading a team of incredibly smart, opinionated, hardworking. It was amazing. I mean, the co-founders, Odysseus and Stratis, uh, two Greek high school friends, they basically grew up together and started this company, despite the fact Stratis was in Athens and Odysseus was here in the Bay Area. And then there were a few kids out of MIT, Jason and Josh, I mean, really, really bright, capable people and then smattering of other folks. And I basically was the outsider coming in trying to just essentially lead, try and point the ship in the right direction, give people some clear direction as to where we were going and how we would get there, and then give them responsibilities to help us get there. You know, it's basic leadership, but I'm smiling, almost laughing. I would have shouting matches with Odysseus in the conference room. And I would come out and everybody would be heads down, typing on their keyboards, working. And then one day somebody was in the conference room and they were talking just like a little bit above average. And I was like, wow, you really can hear. And everybody looked at me. They were like nodding their heads. Like, yeah, we hear every fight that you have in the room. Like, then we had these knockdown, drag out, passionate arguments as to what we should be doing and how we should get there. And it's just hilarious. Like, I mean, I was lucky enough to be invited to join the team. I think if it were a year later, they'd be like, no, you're not hiring this guy. Like, no way. So I was lucky enough to get in there. And I was lucky enough to work with such a talented group of capable people over the years. And luckily, I made some right calls and steered the ship in a decent direction to get it to the point where I could step aside, we could bring somebody else in and I could go and do something else. Did you enjoy your time there? I loved it.
0: Can you just tell me about a couple of moments here? Because I feel like maybe everyone listening, if they haven't used Odesk or work, right when I saw it and learned about it, I'm like, man, this is a game changer. It seems just very, very interesting. This was actually the part of the story where I'm almost most intrigued of like you coming in, what hurdles you had to go through. And so could you just walk us through a couple of the biggest hurdles or biggest achievements that you made while you were there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so what made it exciting was it was just such an impactful business. You're connecting people who have skills, whether they're in Bangladesh or Michigan, with clients all over the world. And you're creating an environment where they can find and match with the right worker, manage that worker as if they're in the same office via communication and collaboration. We had some tools for guaranteeing that an hour build was actually an hour worked And for the worker that an hour worked was an hour paid. So if you work an hour, we're going to pay you even if we don't collect the money from the client. And for the client, we can guarantee that this person worked an hour on your stuff. And that basically enabling managing by walking around via the web was the invention. It was this hire an hourly worker to work for you It's somebody with the right skills and reputation and knowledge to do whatever. I don't know, my wife has a photo editor who edits her photos and I had an Excel jockey who did all my Excel stuff from Bangladesh for like $12 an hour, which is incredible. So the thing that made it so exciting is one, it was high growth. I mean, we were growing like crazy and there's so many hard problems to solve coming at a high rate of speed. So you're making 10 decisions in a morning, you know, about stuff. And there's big problems to solve. Somebody steals $30,000 from you and you're like, oops, I guess we should close that credit card loophole. Or... I don't know, at one point, somebody posted porn on our homepage, like from outside. A worker could have a profile, and so somebody uploaded all these profiles with pornographic pictures on them. One of our customers pinged me when I got up at 5 a.m. and they were like, do you know that you have pornography all over your website? I was like, I did not know that. (laughs) It's comical that going from, I've said it a couple of times in our conversation, but going from the jungle, where everybody's got a machete in each hand and you're just blazing a path to get through this thick jungle, to transitioning to this dirt road where now you have to like lose the machetes and get a Jeep. And then ultimately onto the highway, we merged with Elance. We were close to 100 million in revenue and we were 80 million in revenue and they were 40 million in revenue. We put those two companies together and therein is another learning experience. So just the excitement of going on this journey from the jungle to the dirt road, and to the highway, and every day making decisions that could have gone one way or another. And many of them we got wrong. There's a lot of wisdom and learning and getting something wrong and saying, oh, well, let's not do that again. But how do we fix it or choose right this time?
0: Can you give us an example or two of things that
1: you did wrong? There's so many, I don't even know where to start. Pricing is an interesting one. In the early days, we originally charged whatever the worker's rate was, plus $6 an hour flat rate. So if you wanted to make $10 an hour, we'd say, great, we're going to pay you 10. And then we would bill you out at 16. And for every hour you worked, we'd collect 16 from the client and we would give you 10. And that was good and fine until a $6 worker, you were marking up to $12. That's a hundred percent markup on that person. Whereas a $30 worker, $6, 36 And so we went to a 30% fee. We made a lot less money, but... It was a lot more fair. And then we realized that 30% was fine until clients found out that we were making 30% and they would get mad at us. They'd say, Hey, all you did was connect me with this person. It's not fair that you're making so much. And we dropped to 10%. And so our revenue went down overnight. There was this drop in revenue. But six months later, our volume was up to the point where it recouped everything we had left on the table. So at the time, you could have said that was a stupid move. And in hindsight, it was great for enabling us to get massive growth and scale, despite the fact we left a lot of money on the table. I think now the take rate at Upwork is closer to 15 or 16%. So you could argue that we dropped it too low, we didn't add fees, we were just making these bold swings. And I think there's a blog post. Bill Gurley wrote a blog post about this called The Rake Too Far, where he talks about marketplaces and what's the right move. And he actually applauds that decision to go to 10% because it was low enough that nobody could undercut us or very few would want to undercut us, yet high enough to still make some money and remove all the friction to growth. And so we blew by all the competitors because we had priced low.
0: So pricing was a challenge. And I could see that. The thing is, you're dealing with a world economy too. You're not just dealing with the US where maybe some percentages sound good to them versus somewhere else. So- I could see that obviously being a difficult thing to try to figure out because I know they even still play around with it today, trying to figure out the right pricing. What else other than this issue, which again, it seems like a big hurdle, what other issue did you actually have growing this virtual staffing marketplace?
1: Well, we had massive challenges with quality. So we're a marketplace. Think of it like eBay. You go on eBay and you buy something and then it shows up at your door and you're like, well, the quality is poor. That's because eBay doesn't take possession of the thing and verify that it's a real Rolex and then sell it to you. They just say, look, we're going to give you data about the seller and about the buyer. And you go off and decide as to whether or not it's a good transaction. And it's really hard with work. With a Rolex, it's real or it's fake. With work, it's art. It could be great work, but you're a really fussy buyer. And you have to deliver a great result, even if you're not responsible for the work. And so in the early days, somebody would get a bad result on Odesk and I would say, well, listen, all I did was match you with the worker and give you tolls to manage him and pay him. I'm not responsible for the actual work. What would you have done if you had hired this person locally? And so I could win the argument, but lose the war. You know what I mean? (laughs) Win the battle, but lose the war. Because I was right, but it's not a good business to say buyer beware. People would rather buy something on Amazon than eBay if there's a chance that it's scratched or fell off the back of a truck or if the quality is going to be poor. And so this quality became a big issue for us. And I would say that we grew so fast that we may have grown at the expense of maintaining quality. Slower growth and more of a diligence on quality could have been better for us.
0: Yeah. And I think it's some people just wanting to whine about something, honestly, because I mean, saying what you're saying, I mean, obviously, you're just a marketplace, but I don't think enough people who post jobs take ownership of like, oh, did I train them right? Even though it might be data input and stuff. If I ever had bad experiences on there on a cheap worker is like, okay, it didn't work out, but it's costs so little that it's worth a trial. And if it didn't work out, it's on to the next one. But I could see, yeah, that being an issue because it's not like you just did one thing. It's not like you're like, oh, we just do data input. Although that's kind of what I used it for at first, right? You were solving lots of different types of jobs over lots of different types of industries.
1: Yes. It was a challenge being in the middle of that.
0: Kind of wrapping up, we've already kind of talked about what you do today. And I know we got a few minutes left. What was that transition like? Did you end up leaving Odesk because they renamed it Upwork?
1: We decided to merge with Elance. So Odesk was number one in the market, Elance was number two. We put the two companies together and we decided to do that despite the fact we were very competitive for years. In these marketplace businesses, there is a winner take all mentality where sometimes one and one equals three. And we saw it with Grubhub and Seamless, two food delivery services that came together, HomeAway and VRBO, two home marketplaces, Zillow and Trulia, two real estate brands coming together. And there's just a lot of synergies. One CEO, one CFO, one marketing budget, and really very similar services. And Elance had a lot of assets that we didn't have. They were better at fixed price work where build me this widget, how much, this amount of money, I'll build you this thing. And Odesk was better at time-based work, hiring somebody by the hour. And think of all the functionality between, you know, in order to support those different business models. And you know, Elance had an escrow license, Odesk had a payment platform. And so it really was a case of one-on-one one equaling three. And I decided to leave, why? Well, because impact, growth and development, financial reward and balance. I didn't have all of those things, number one. And number two, we talked a lot about Jungle, Dirt Road and Highway. I think I'm better Jungle to Pave Road than I am Pave Road to Highway. And once we put those two companies together, that's Highway. You're $120 million plus in revenue. You're putting these two companies together and the goal is to go public. While I think it would have been fun to actually be at the helm for that, Unfortunately, it came with the 50% of the job I already know, the other stuff that I didn't feel like doing. And it was time for me to go to start my next chapter.
0: Great. Well, like I said, I mean, Gary, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your stories all the way through this. If you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening, what might that be?
1: I would just reinforce what we've already talked about. What are you good at? What do you like doing? And what will people pay you to do? And you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Did you come up with that quote? did I come up with which one? That quote. The 100% of the shots you don't take? No, I've heard that. Do you know who said it? No, who said it?
0: Wayne Gretzky. See, so oh. now we're both helping each other out. I was thinking Reed Hoffman, which had to do with LinkedIn. So now we've dropped knowledge on both each other here.
1: There you go. So you can always reverse. You give it a shot, like us moving out to the West Coast. We said, oh, we'll try for two years. If it's not good, we can come back, put our stuff in storage. And yes, it's a big move. And even when I left IBM, my boss at IBM at that time said, you can come back anytime. Just let me know when you want to come back. There'll always be a job here for you. So when you have that safety net, it's even better. It's like, wow, I could even go back. If it didn't work out, you might go out there and find out, gee, I hate the West Coast. I want to go back to the East Coast. Or turns out I really did like IBM. I just didn't realize. it. And so knowing that you can usually go back or knowing that you can reverse course should give you the confidence to at least try these things. And you know, now at my advanced age, we've talked about it a few times. My only regrets are that I wish I had done more, right? Did I stay in manufacturing too long? Did I stay at IBM too long? So I don't think people ever regret or say that they should have stayed longer.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good quote to leave it on there too. So if anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to connect with you, Gary, and say thank you for doing the interview?
1: Yeah, I would say LinkedIn is good. I do some blogging there. Some of the things we talked about today or follow me or whatever it's called as a LinkedIn influencer.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Gary, for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Thanks, Austin. Really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to catching up again.
0: Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three, where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry. Or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.